Chapter 2. University of Michigan, CSO Recordings, Early Adolf Hirsch Lessons, 1967-1970. through In September of 1967, the University of Michigan School of Music had about 1,000 enrolled music majors. Located on a new separate campus north of the town and the main campus, the music building complex operated as a conservatory in which all classes were offered centrally. The only exceptions were the physical education course, which was required for one year, and the single non-music academic class, which was required each semester in residence. These latter courses were taught on the main campus. The program at this school emphasized primarily its music education curriculum, which had trained for many decades legions of high-quality directors of bands and student orchestras. Although numerous graduates of the year-round high school at the Interlochen Arts Academy attended the U of M Music School, often in the performance degree program, the main focus of the university was not on such degrees, nor particularly on its symphony orchestras. However, this emphasis began to change with my class. The increasing interest of students wishing to earn a degree in instrumental performance, especially in orchestral performance, soon led to the development of a double major in both music education and performance. I began my training in the straight music ed program and switched after two years to the double major curriculum. Based upon my entrance audition, I was assigned to study not with Clifford Lilia, but instead with a doctoral student who was working toward a degree in trumpet performance. This individual had virtually nothing to offer me during two full semesters of weekly private lessons. He mostly listened silently while I ran through etudes that I'd worked on for years under my father's guidance. Later, after completing his degree, this individual would go on to a career teaching and playing in the hinterlands in Texas. At the start of my freshman year, I was placed as the lead trumpet in the concert band, the second-level ensemble. There were numerous players less advanced than me in the lower positions within the first ensemble, the symphony band. However, I was placed in the concert band so that this group would have a strong and secure lead player. According to the band director track in which I was enrolled, I also signed up for the marching band. As the football season progressed, my chops became more and more brutalized from the simultaneous high-step marching and playing. What a lousy combination of activities. As a result, I was gradually moved down to second and then third position in the concert band, superseded by two players who were not enduring the rigors of marching band. After my chops had recuperated during the holiday break, I arranged to audition privately for William Ravelli, who was known nationwide as the Dean of Band Directors. Since he liked what he heard in the audition, I was elevated to the symphony band for the second semester as the lead player in the third trumpet group. After I had completed my presentation for Ravelli, he asked with whom I had studied previously. I answered just with my father. Ravelli. Really? He must be a professional teacher. Kent. No, he runs a little credit union and a home bakery with my mother. Ravelli. Oh, then he must have earlier been a professional teacher. Kent. No, previously he was a hairdresser. During my very first day at U of M, I had met Orlando Cora, a warm-hearted Puerto Rican who had been personally sent by Pablo Casals to earn a double master's degree in trumpet and piano performance. Although his command of the English language was minimal, we soon became fast friends. One of our favorite activities was to go to pizza joints near the main campus, at which I would pretend to speak no English, and Orlando would manage to communicate for both of us with his very fractured language. It was fascinating to note how co-ed waitresses seemed to be particularly drawn to dark-complexioned, Orlando was mahogany and I was olive, black-haired guys who spoke little or no English. I was first introduced to legit music during my first week of college 
when I began attending music theory and music literature history classes. At first, the content was mostly an incomprehensible blur, particularly due to the pace of the coursework. Nearly all the other students in music school had already received much exposure to a wide range of musical genres. In addition, the vast majority of them had spent many of their youthful years studying piano. Thus, the pace of the college-level classes was generally geared to their considerable degree of pre-knowledge and musical competency. My fellow students in beginning piano class only needed a short refresher course after years of playing as youngsters. In stark contrast, I was hard-pressed to memorize during the first week which of those 88 white and black keys were associated with which notes on the printed page. In addition, after eight years of reading only a single line of music, reading multiple lines of a piano score, while locating the notes on the keyboard, was an excruciating feat. My nemesis that entire year was piano class, which I passed only due to the sympathy and extra assistance of a very charitable teacher. The one strong suit that I possessed for music theory was my gift of both perfect pitch and relative pitch, which made oral dictation a breeze. In music literature slash history, I was totally unfamiliar with both the names and the characteristic sounds of the standard composers, while most of my student colleagues could already identify by ear specific compositions. I remember how excited I was in the listening lab when I was finally able to identify by ear the piece Till Elenspiegel's Merry Pranks and to know that it had been written by Richard Strauss. Now there was a remedial music student. My sensations of unfamiliarity were further accentuated as I participated in the various beginning instrumental classes during my years at U of M, acquiring a very basic command of many of the band and orchestra instruments in preparation for a career as an ensemble conductor. As an antidote to this avalanche of unfamiliar musical and academic content while a freshman, I sometimes played quietly along with the radio in my dorm room improvising variations to the tunes as I had done for years on gigs with combos. Those former long nights of playing dance tunes under dim lights in a smoky haze, with the associated lovely female scenery passing by, now seemed very distant in the past. After my introduction to how thrilling symphonic music could be at the Chicago Symphony Concert on the 1st of October that featured Adolf Herseth playing the Telemann Concerto, I began avidly buying CSO records. At the time, I did not have stereo equipment of my own to play those platters, so I spent many hours savoring them on the communal stereo in the lounge at the end of the hall in my dorm. During this same period, I became friends with Stanley Shimko, an upperclassman bass trombonist who for many years had been an avid CSO fan, a student of Ed Kleinheimer of CSO fame, and a rabid record collector. Many nights after the music building closed at 10.30, He and I would listen to records at his apartment of Bud and the Boys, as Stan dubbed the Chicago Brass Section. He owned all of the orchestra's recordings from the earliest Kubelik years forward, and he could knowledgeably conduct most of the pieces, in many cases without a score. While working my way through Stan's massive record collection, it became very clear that the CSO Brass Section, with Bud at its helm, represented the absolute cream of the crop in the symphonic world, and the only one that I felt was worth emulating. Even though I had only met Bud once after the run-out concert in October, I was already seriously studying with him at a distance by absorbing the orchestra's recordings. I did not realize at the time that within a year and a half of that concert, I would have access to in-person lessons with the master.
At this point, I was learning, with the resources that were then available to me, how to emulate as best I could his sound, his style, and his manner of playing lead on legit music. At the end of that school year, when I heard the Philadelphia Orchestra under Ormandy playing its traditional week of May festival concerts in Ann Arbor, I realized all the more clearly how far in front of the rest of the pack were Bud Herseth and his colleagues in the Chicago brass section. All my life, I had admired trumpet soloists whose styles, although played in various different genres, were emotional, dramatic, well-disciplined, extroverted, and virtuosic. Thus, I was drawn to Bud's artistry from the very first time that I heard it. His playing possessed all of the traits that I loved, yet he applied them within the genre of symphonic music, which was entirely new to me. Every aspect of Adolf Herseth's music-making was astounding. His magnificent tone was so rich and concentrated, with loads of overtones and plenty of air flowing, that it could be heard within the orchestral texture, no matter how softly or in whatever register he played. His intonation was impeccable, as was also his disciplined precision, execution, and rhythm. His complete mastery of all technical aspects of trumpet playing in all registers, as well as his fantastic dynamic range, power, and endurance, resulted in music that was always clearly articulated, rhythmic, and energetic. Bud's immense musicality, involving a constant pulse and forward motion, as well as an acute sensitivity and attention to the slightest of nuances, was so communicative that it caused visceral reactions in everyone who heard it, including me. These reactions would range from tears brought about by a simple six-note lyrical passage in pictures at an exhibition, to exultation from a bombastic and glorious ending of a piece like Mahler's Symphony No. 5, as well as myriad other sensations in between. The degree of artistry that he consistently maintained created an indelible impact on all listeners. When this pillar of self-confidence played his horn, Gabriel himself likely stood in awe and I was next in line. I was determined to do whatever it took to someday play with at least some semblance of that style and degree of quality. After finishing my freshman year with the university band tour to Carnegie Hall and several cities in Pennsylvania, I returned home, commenced my summer job at the Wallboard factory, and practiced and listened a lot. However, one day my upper front tooth that bore a crown broke apart which then required converting three of my upper front teeth into a single bridge. This procedure entailed several weeks of having no front teeth at all, which meant no practicing during those weeks. At the conclusion of the summer, which had been filled with factory work, eventually much practicing, and bar gigs with combos, I returned to Ann Arbor for my sophomore year, more intensely inspired than ever to learn to play with the Chicago style and quality. This year, having a single room in the dorm equipped with my own stereo, the instructional listening sessions with Stan Shimko were even more regular, including a weekly rendezvous with the CFSO live broadcasts on public radio. In these sessions, I was enthralled by the entire brass section, since they had decades earlier acquired most of Bud's musical attributes under his leadership and direction. By this time, I had acquired a set of 13 volumes of trumpet orchestral excerpts. Now I could visually follow along with the most important passages. However, at this point, I had no clue as to how to transpose the keys of any of those parts. This was a handicap, which in symphonic trumpet work was nearly equivalent to not being able to read music. During this school year, I benefited very much from private lessons with Clifford Lilia, although I had access to his guidance for only four months during the fall semester. Cliff did not have an orchestral background, 
but he did have a great deal of knowledge to impart concerning solo literature, etudes, ensemble playing, and overall musicianship. He was also extremely adept at the psychology of teaching and playing, being very gifted at discerning the appropriate guidance that each particular student needed. He often said, a trumpet player plays as much on his ego as he does on his chops. To encourage progress and generate performance opportunities for his students, Cliff sponsored a monthly noontime recital featuring trumpet solos with piano accompaniment. Some of the students participated in only one or two of these shows, but I enthusiastically played a different solo in each one. I was elated to have so many chances to incorporate Cliff's valuable guidance and to become familiar for the first time with some of the standard solo literature. To promote a variety of musical styles within a given student's repertoire, he would wisely alternate old-fashioned cornet virtuoso solos between the legit pieces during the course of a semester. Cliff also put me in touch with Glenn Bridges of Detroit, who made tape recordings upon request from his huge collection of early cylinder and thick platter recordings of famous cornet soloists. The tapes that I received from him, which included performances by such early masters as Herbert L. Clark and Alessandro Liberati, were very inspiring to me. I had played this style of virtuoso solos and duets throughout my years in the city band, but I had rarely heard recordings of such pieces. During the fall semester of 1968, I traveled to Chicago to purchase from the Schilke Company a B-flat and a C-trumpet and a Schilke mouthpiece. Until then, I had always played an Olds B-flat and an Olds mouthpiece. After which, I began to become familiar with the playing the horn in the key of C. It was during this period that my perfect pitch became a bit confused. Since the age of 10, I had always played a B-flat instrument and had interpreted whatever I heard on recordings in this key. However, as I became more and more familiar with the C trumpet, my brain for a time was sometimes in one key and sometimes in the other when I listened to recordings. Finally, extensive usage of the C horn finally converted my brain permanently into the key of C. Since my interest in playing symphonic music had become salient by this point, I enrolled in both the band and the orchestra this year, playing lead in the group of second trumpets in the band. However, in the orchestra, there were very few opportunities for me to actually play anything since the upperclassmen had been previously ensconced there and I was the newcomer. In the band, Ravelli enjoyed intimidating and demeaning most of the students except his few obvious favorites. A legend in his own mind, he attempted to model himself after his Italian counterpart, Toscanini. I did not appreciate this condescending approach to conducting, particularly in a student setting in which these younger and developing players ought to have been encouraged rather than discouraged. Likewise, I felt that those students who intended to become conductors ought to be presented with a positive role model to emulate instead of a grotesquely negative one who delighted in beating players down. Therefore, on the first day of the second semester, I visited Ravelli in his office to tell him that I was resigning immediately from his band, intending to focus instead on orchestral playing. Fixing me in his famous blistering gaze, he indicated that he had been grooming me to become his lead player the following year. He then declared that I would never have a successful career in music, shouted, you damned skunk, and ordered me out of his office. I never did report back to him in later years to happily indicate that in spite of his angry hex, I had actually had an excellent career in music. Cliff Lilia was absent during the second semester on a sabbatical leave. Leonard Smith, the cornet soloist and conductor of the Detroit Concert Band, was scheduled to teach each of Cliff's students for the semester. 
However, as a punishment for my mutinous behavior, Ravelli arranged that I would instead receive lessons from the doctoral student teacher. The individual in the doctoral position at this time, a friend of mine, was chagrined at the prospect of having to give me lessons. He privately indicated that I shouldn't bother coming to the studio during my assigned lesson time. He would simply register for me an A grade for the semester, and I could better use the time practicing on my own. Thus, the entire second half of this year of college offered me no private lessons, no noontime solo outlets. Those recitals had been temporarily suspended during Cliff's leave of absence. No band playing and minimal orchestra participation. So I practiced heartily and also listened intently to CSO recordings and live broadcasts with excerpt books in hand. At the end of the semester in early May, I traveled to Chicago to have the Schilke technicians do a couple of minor repairs on my two horns. Afterward, I slept overnight at my Greek grandmother's apartment in the suburb of Oak Park and then stopped in to see my aunt a few blocks away before beginning the long drive to northern Michigan to spend the summer. During the course of the conversation at my aunt's home, she happened to show me a newspaper clipping which described a soloist who had played the Hummel Concerto for Trumpet with the Civic Orchestra of Chicago the previous Sunday evening. She asked, Have you ever heard of this cornet player? He lives just down the street in the next block. Our son Bob has been good friends with his daughter, Christine, ever since they were little. I was stunned when I read the headline of the article, Herseth Triumphs in Trumpet Concerto. He lives here? He's the greatest trumpet player in the world, I exclaimed. I could see from the look on her face that she was not convinced that the guy down the street with the southward slouching porch steps had international stature in any field, and she did not have time to be convinced since she was leaving for work. Pulling away from the curb of South Clarence Avenue, I suddenly had the impulse to stop at house number 1044 and say hello to the master. So I first headed for the nearest gas station a few blocks away to brush my teeth and hair for the momentous occasion. Returning to the house, my heart pounding in my chest, I excitedly mounted those slanting green steps and rang the bell. When the door swung open, I said, Hello, Mr. Herseth. I'm Tim Kent, a nephew of the Newmans just down the street. When my aunt mentioned that you lived here, I thought I would stop by to say hello and tell you how much I admire your playing. I'm a trumpet student at U of M in Ann Arbor, and I met you when you played there a year and a half ago. Although I had interrupted his practicing in the basement, Mr. Herseth was very gracious and cordial. Encouraged by this, I suddenly had the thought of asking him if he might occasionally give me lessons if I drove there from Michigan. Without the slightest hesitation, he agreed. At that time, I was totally unaware that the master very rarely taught anyone except the trumpet players in the civic orchestra. That specific moment on the porch signaled the very beginning of many years of generosity, encouragement, and in-depth training by Bud Herseth directed toward me. It is certainly food for thought to consider how my life might have played out quite differently if my aunt had not shown me the Hummel Review clipping, or if Bud had not been home on that particular morning, or if he had chosen to not answer the doorbell and had instead continued his practice session in the basement, or if he had not decided on the spot to teach me. When I descended those five porch steps, the direction of my life had improved considerably. And thinking back all these years later, there were very few times thereafter when I would come down those steps without my chops being absolutely wiped out and my mind being thrilled from all the improvements that Bud had just wrought in my playing. 
En route from Oak Park to Osuneki, where I'd spend the summer working at the Abitibi Wallboard Factory and practicing, I stopped at Michigan State University in East Lansing to share the wonderful news with my longtime friend, Doree Minton. She had been my first girlfriend in high school when we had been 14, and we had remained good friends ever since. In the course of telling her about my exciting encounter with a master and his agreeing to give me private lessons, I neglected to relate to her that I'd already decided to marry her. She had a serious long-term boyfriend at the time, but both of those issues would be sorted out by the end of the summer. During the next year and a half, each of my monthly lessons with Bud entailed a round trip of 1,000 miles by car from Osuneki during the two summers and a round trip of 500 miles from U of M during the 1969-1970 school year. On several occasions during those two summers, I drove the 500 miles from Osuneki, immediately took the lesson, and then drove directly back without sleeping in order to squeeze the trip into my work schedule at the factory. During nearly all of the trips during that school year, I also heard a concert by the CSO in Orchestra Hall using a ticket that Bud would purchase in advance for me at the box office. Hearing the master and the orchestra live and in person was even more thrilling than listening to those fabulous sounds on recordings. After each of those live performances, the brass passages would replay continuously in my head throughout the long drive back to Michigan. Previous to my first training session with Bud, I had taken lessons in the fundamentals of playing from my father for eight years at home and had received four months of training from Cliff Lilia on a very few pieces from the legit solo repertoire. I had not played any of the standard orchestral literature, I did not know how to transpose in any key, and I had become only moderately familiar with the C trumpet, but not with any of the high horns. My first lesson in Bud's basement studio took place on June 19, 1969. On the way there from Michigan, after eight hours of driving, I missed the expressway intersection near downtown Chicago, which would have directed me westward to Oak Park. When I finally realized that I was well off the track, I stopped and learned that I had driven to the northern suburbs. Calling Bud from a payphone, I received directions on how to reach his home from there. He told me not to hurry. When I finally arrived, well after the scheduled time, He offered me an iced tea and allowed me to relax and then warm up a bit before we started a training program that would be continued for years. During the course of that time, I would be given open access to the master's encyclopedic knowledge of music and its interpretation of trumpets, mouthpieces, and mutes, (coughs) and of conductors and concert halls. Several years later, I asked him why he had agreed to teach that complete stranger who had appeared on his porch in May 1969. He explained that if I had not played well during the first lesson, it would have been my last one as well. Since I felt so terribly deficient in the standard orchestral literature, I requested that we focus on that particular aspect of playing at first, which we did for about the first two years of my instruction. Learning to play the passages from each piece, which appeared in the excerpt books, also involved mastering each of the transpositions, as well as becoming totally familiar with each of the high horns. In addition, I was expected to acquire an understanding of the appropriate style of each piece and how the excerpted passages fit into the total orchestra texture by listening to recordings as well as live concerts and broadcasts. For this training program, I purchased a Schilke D-E flat trumpet, a Selmer four-valve piccolo trumpet in A and B flat, and appropriate Bach mouthpieces for each of them, as well as Bach mouthpieces for the Schilke B flat and C horns that I'd previously bought. During the course of each lesson, in discussing the excerpts that I played, Bud would note how they fit into the complete orchestra context, and while I played, he would sometimes sing an important counter-melody with which my part was to fit. 
In addition, he sometimes played the second trumpet part to provide accompaniment and harmony, and he occasionally demonstrated passages for me. I vividly remember him once playing for me, without a single note of warm-up and with great beauty, the slow and sustained lyrical solo from Parsifal that soars up to high sea. Now that was inspiring. In our sessions, he also described and tried out on me the varying requests that certain conductors had made concerning those passages over his many years on the job. In addition, he talked about the various horns, mouthpieces, and mutes that he had used for the pieces, the venues in which the orchestra had performed them, and the work schedules that had been involved. I was intrigued to learn that in spite of his many decades of experience, he still continued to experiment on a regular basis with both equipment and interpretations, constantly expanding his knowledge base. This wealth of knowledge that he was passing on to me in the lessons was invaluable, teaching me about all aspects of handling an orchestral position. In addition, these interesting discussions also allowed me some time to recover during the course of those strenuous sessions before launching into the next set of excerpted passages. The lessons would usually continue for two or three hours. It was clear that Bud was not the least concerned about the extensive amount of time that he was investing in me and my advancement. Even before the first lesson, I had been acutely aware of Bud's degree of dedication to excellence and the highest musical standards from the CSO recordings. However, the private lessons afforded me a much deeper glimpse into his total commitment to performing at the highest level possible and the extent of his passion for music making. His demands on me mirrored the rigorous program that he had carried out himself for many decades. These sessions allowed me to share in his inspiration, gave me a chance to absorb some of his vast store of knowledge, and eventually enabled me to acquire at least a moderate amount of his abilities. Besides all of the musical aspects of my training, Bud also advised me on the benefits to be derived from a regular physical exercise program, such as the Royal Canadian Air Force exercises that he did, as well as appropriate eating regimens on rehearsal and concert days. He also stressed the value of having avid non-musical interests, which helped greatly in keeping one's interest in music fresh. In Bud's case, he loved to play golf as well as to contemplate art. Between rehearsals at Orchestra Hall, he frequently crossed Michigan Avenue to the Art Institute of Chicago. There, he was particularly drawn to the Impressionists, one of the strongest collections in the museum. He also loved to travel and cook, as well as study Viking history and culture, which represented his own Norwegian ancestry. In addition, he was deeply interested in the ancient art, religious shrines, foods, and lifestyles of Japan. In order to retain as much as possible of the content of our sessions, I made copious notations on the music itself during the course of each lesson. In addition, beginning with the very first visit to Bud's basement studio, I would leave his house, drive around the corner of the block, park, and immediately write in my notebook as much as I could remember of what he had related to me. Later, I would reread those notations many times and thus continually reabsorb this wealth of information between lessons. One of the categories of interesting information that I recorded in my notebook was a list of each of the many instruments that Bud had in his studio, which he would occasionally show me during the lessons. To keep track of the 35 or more horns plus the many bells, I kept a running list of them over the years, separating them according to the key in which they were pitched. B-flat, Besson trumpet, Kuznin trumpet, an engraved cornet, Monk rotary trumpet, Schmidt rotary trumpet, Kunzel rotary trumpet, Bohm rotary trumpet, and a combination A, B-flat rotary trumpet. Key of C. Bach, large bore trumpets with 229 bells and various lead pipes, both his own horns plus the one belonging to the CSO. Schilke, C5 trumpet. 
Schilke C5 trumpet with huge bell, two Holton trumpets, Heckel rotary trumpet, Honorka rotary trumpet, and Ultradator rotary trumpet. Key of D. Bach trumpet, Holton trumpet, Schilke combination D E flat trumpet with four different changeable bells. E flat, con cornet, and Boston rotary trumpet, besides the Schilke E3L trumpet listed above. Key of E. Two changeable bells for the Schilke E3L frame, and two changeable bells for the Schilke FG frame listed below. FG combination, Schilke trumpet. Key of G, Bach trumpet. Piccolo combination, A, B flat. Monk rotary trumpet with three valves. Monk rotary trumpet with four valves. Yamaha prototype trumpet with three valves, valve section from a medium large C trumpet fitted with short pipes and a bell section. And Yamaha standard piccolo trumpet with four valves. Piccolo B-flat, Kuznin trumpet, and Schilke. Bass trumpet, Krusp, combination, C, D, E-flat, rotary trumpet. Finally, modern reproductions of natural Baroque trumpets in various keys, one round-coiled version and one coiled version, and two long versions by Tar, spelled T-A-R-R. During the course of the lessons, Bud would occasionally bring out some of these hidden treasures, tell me their histories, play a little on them, and encourage me to play them as well. He also sometimes had me play passages with the horns, mouthpieces, and mutes that he had used on a regular basis at home and on the job. As added inspiration, he occasionally made for me copies of tapes of certain of his live performances of solo pieces. In one instance, after we'd begun focusing on piccolo playing, he produced for me a copy of a performance of the Bach Brandenburg Concerto No. 2 that he had done with members of the orchestra. On the same tape, he also included a recording from the 1930s of the same piece by members of the École Normale or- Orchestra of Paris, with Eugène Favot playing a Besson F trumpet. For me, this tape illustrated just how far the development of modern instruments had advanced since the days of Bud's youth, and how extremely far he had personally raised the bar on the quality of playing. Although I'd passed muster enough with Bud at my very first lesson to be kept on as his student, That lesson was nearly my last one for another reason. In July, while working the night shift at the factory, I fell asleep at the wheel one early morning while driving home after work. I didn't wake up until I drifted across the oncoming lane and struck the ditch at 70 miles an hour. Rolling repeatedly, end over end and sideways, the car was finally brought to a stop on its side by a stand of trees. Climbing out through the opening that had shortly before been the windshield area, I thought I had escaped undamaged. However, this accident signaled the beginning of serious pain at L5, the lowest vertebra of my spine, which would ultimately be a contributing factor in my choosing to give up a successful career as an orchestral player several decades later. During my junior year at Michigan, I continued my monthly treks to Oak Park to study with Bud and to hear Chicago Symphony concerts. During those jaunts, it was a real pleasure feasting on home-cooked Greek meals at the apartment of my 80-year-old Graham Capantis, since I was subsisting at school on canned food that I warmed in my room on an electric griddle. At the university, I received lessons from Cliff Lilia, performed a different solo each month at the noontime trumpet recital, including my first experiences with the Haydn and Hummel concertos, and played in the school orchestra, only one performance of each of two different programs during the course of the year. In addition, I played fifth trumpet on three performances of one program with the Toledo Symphony, all of which did not yield a great deal of orchestral playing experience. All the while, I continued to inculcate my brain with the sounds of Bud and the CSO via recordings and live concert broadcasts. 
During the fall semester, I took both oboe and saxophone classes as part of my music education curriculum. Those classes, coupled with the necessary private practice sessions on the two reed instruments, tended to wreak havoc with my trumpet chops. However, this was accentuated all the more by the fact that my oboe class finished just 10 minutes before the orchestra rehearsal commenced. Another factor during this entire school year that distracted me to a certain degree from maximum musical progress was my courtship of Doree at Michigan State. My weekly lesson with Cliff was scheduled for 10 o'clock each Monday morning. When I would knock on his studio door, having just arrived after the 60-mile drive from East Lansing, he would assess my unsteady condition with an appraising glance from beneath his bushy white eyebrows. Then he would shuffle toward me and say, let's sit and chat for a while before we start playing. He also had the wisdom to have me sit to play during our lessons, even though I customarily stood to both practice and take lessons at the school. Besides his musical knowledge, Cliff also knew a great deal about young students' life and love. By midwinter, after our official engagement, I had decided to leave the university at the end of the semester with only three years completed toward a degree. In that era of the Vietnam War, this action would mean losing my college deferment and being drafted into the Army. So I subjected myself to a haircut from a barber, the very last barber cut of my life, flew to the West Point Military Academy, auditioned for the band there, and arranged to spend the next four years safely out of combat in upstate New York. During the spring, the first televised draft lottery was held, in which each of the 365 days of the year were individually chosen in random order from a hopper to determine the order by birth date in which eligible candidates would be drafted. Doree and I paid close attention to the TV in the basement of her dorm at MSU, our future uncertain. My birthday, May 22nd, was chosen as number 329, so the likelihood of my being drafted that year after leaving college seemed to be considerably reduced. However, immediately after the lottery, a high-ranking general announced that even those individuals with higher numbers, such as mine, would probably not escape the draft. So I proceeded with my plans for West Point, by taking the required tests and physical exam, after which I was assigned a date in late September to report for basic training. According to our plans, Doree would complete the final semester for her degree during my months of training, and then join me at West Point in December. The Chicago Symphony made its first triumphant trip with Maestro Schulte to Carnegie Hall during the spring of 1970, near the end of Schulte's first season as music director of the orchestra. En route to New York, the ensemble performed Mahler's Fifth Symphony in Toledo, which was an easy drive for both Doree and me. After the thrilling concert, I introduced her to Bud backstage. Two decades later, during a CSO tour of Japan, he would observe, You guys were holding hands when I first met you, and you're still holding hands. By this point in 1970, I realized that my shilky B-flat and C trumpets were simply not putting out as much as I was putting into them. This fact had become very apparent whenever I played on Bud's Bach horns during lessons. So I asked him if he would choose for me Bach replacements for my two shilky bighorns at a downtown Chicago music store. In June, after a considerable number of sea trumpets had been shipped from the Bach factory to that dealer, Bud chose the best one out of the batch, purchased it at a discount, and sent it to me in Michigan. He later located a good B-flat and sent it to me the following October. After my summer filled with practicing, laboring at the Walboard factory, and making a number of thousand-mile trips for lessons, Doree and I celebrated our wedding on September 5th and soon departed for our honeymoon in Puerto Rico. 
However, in the true spirit of an avid developing trumpet player and his very supportive spouse, we postponed our honeymoon for a week so that we could attend a tour concert by Maurice Andre in southern Michigan. Staying in San Juan, Puerto Rico with my old college friend Orlando Cora and his wife Betsy, we witnessed the birth of their first child, after which I played as Orlando's substitute on a number of recording sessions for radio and television commercials, as well as on several rehearsals for the musical The Man of La Mancha. In the process, I was offered the job of playing the entire run of the show. This gig would have been fun, but at this point I was still intending to report for basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky at the end of the month. However, back on the mainland, it soon became apparent that I would not face the Army draft. So I simply neglected to show up on the assigned reporting date and abandoned my plans for a four-year stint with the band at the West Point Academy. Instead, with a very generous cash gift from Orlando and Betsy Cora, we rented a small apartment in an old converted motel, and I spent the fall practicing, listening to recordings, and keeping the household running during Doree's last semester at Michigan State. In early October, Bud sent me the new Bach B-flat trumpet, which facilitated my progress all the more. It was during the summer and fall of 1970 that I developed a mental hang-up in my playing, which would plague me considerably for the next couple of years. Each time I would put the horn up to my face, I would become fixated on the actual start of the first tone instead of focusing on the music that I wished to produce. This attention to the physical aspects of playing hindered my carrying out the natural steps that would create the envisioned musical product. This mental misfocus distracted me considerably from a healthy approach to playing and eroded my self-confidence a great deal. If I had had numerous playing outlets at the time, either solos or ensembles, I would have had many opportunities to focus on the proper aspects of music making and thus bypass this distortion in my thinking. For example, during my monthly lessons with Bud, I didn't have the problem since my mind was entirely attuned to the music during those sessions. However, all of my other playing at this time consisted of only my own private practice sessions, during which I focused on my recalcitrant tongue instead of on the desired musical product. Over the course of the following couple of years, as I became involved in more and more healthy playing outlets, my focus gradually returned to musical goals rather than the physical activities of playing. On November 4, 1970, the Chicago Symphony played a run-out concert at Michigan State with Daniel Berenbaum making his conducting debut with the orchestra, and Jacqueline Dupree, aged 22, his wife of three years, performing the Dvorak Concerto for Cello. The following week, Miss Dupree recorded the concerto with the orchestra and Berenbaum in Orchestra Hall, which represented the young conductor's first recording with the CSO. No one could have imagined at the time that the gifted cellist's career would be cut short three years later when she would be stricken with multiple sclerosis, a disease which would finally claim her life 16 years later. After the Michigan State concert, Bud took Dory and me out for dinner and an inspiring personal chat in Lansing. In the process, we learned that Bud and Avis's wedding anniversary, September 5th, was the same date as ours just a few decades earlier. In late November, we traveled to Oak Park to locate an apartment in anticipation of our move to the Chicago area late in the following month. My paternal grandparents had had a large home built for themselves in Oak Park in 1918, and my father had been born and raised in that suburb. It was a familiar place since I had made occasional trips there with my family all of my life to visit relatives, and it was thus a logical location for us to set up our residence. 